Welcome to a new episode of the Saltwater Euphoria Podcast. This is your go-to sport fishing podcast, where we will cover all things from fishing, boats, tackle, and anything else saltwater related. Well done, gentlemen. Every day is an adventure on the water. We'll be sharing our experiences, stories, tips, and passion for fishing. Gonna need a bigger boat. Oh, think bigger, my friend. Think bigger. Here is your host, Captain Ricky Wheeler. Here we are, episode 35 of the Salt Euphoria podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I just wanted to throw out there that we do have a job board for mates and captains on salteuphoria.com. And it's just in the tabs and it's labeled job board. We've actually successfully placed three mates since we started, which has only been two months now. And if you are a mate or a captain looking for work or also a captain or owner looking for a mate, definitely check it out. Again, it's at saltwaterdefory.com and just click on the job board tab. And if you're a mate or captain looking for work, please reach out to us with your resume and a cover letter about who you are and what kind of work you're looking for. And just email that to podcast at saltwaterdefory.com and I will put it up on the website. Make sure you send a good picture of yourself that is square or at least portrait style and that will show up best on the website. I hope to help more people get job placement and also I know how hard it is sometimes to find a mate when you're looking for one and I want this to become a really great spot to find a person you're looking for. So definitely check that out if you're looking for a mate or if you're a captain or mate looking for work. In this podcast, I have somebody who I have a ton of respect for. On today's podcast, I have someone who I have a ton of respect for. He is an absolute tuna slayer year-round and has been in the business for a long time, especially as a charter captain. To be a charter captain and a commercial fisherman, you really got to love being on the water. And it definitely shines through how much he loves it through everything that he does, the boats that he has at his disposal for charters, and the people I know that fish with him that just rave about how much fun they had fishing with him, especially because he just, he produces. <laughs> Even when it's tough fishing, he makes it happen for his people and Again, he's just an incredible fisherman, super nice guy, and I'd like to introduce to you, Mark Blasio. Hey, Mark, you there? Yeah, Ricky, how you doing? Hey, how you been, man? Good, good. How about yourself? Good, good. Just trying to get all my ducks in a row before we get rolling here. So where are you at right now? Are you in North Carolina? Yeah, I'm in Pirates Cove. Chasing chasing bluefin still? Kind of yeah. mixed bag yet, or what's going on? Yeah, we had some yellowfin action the other day, you know. Right. Um, we're really chasing weather windows. Uh, the fish are here. We just can't get out that much, <laughs> you know. Typical. I mean, it's diff- yeah, it's different, you know. Like co- commercial fishing, we push the limits a little bit and deal with the rough weather. But with charter fishing, you know how it is. You can't oh, yeah. beat these guys up either, you know. Yup, yup. You got to find a happy medium, so. How was your uh, your bluefin season? Came and went yeah, quick. Productive, but extremely extremely short yeah and like just to give you just to give you an example last year we did uh 53,000 in fish sales okay this year we did 21,000 in fish sales wow and, and the fishing was the same like we didn't we did not catch you know it wasn't that we didn't catch it just that's how much quicker it went is it just what's the reason for the the quote is the quote of smaller or is it just getting caught quicker there's more people doing it what's the situation there uh, the quota was slightly smaller this year, but mm-hmm. there was just a lot more. 
the fish were a lot more spread out. There was fish still in Massachusetts in January. There was fish in Moorhead and there was fish here. And they, they, uh, it went through the, the limited quota that we had. We went through it a lot faster. Um, I think everybody's also gotten a lot more tuned in to how to catch these things. Guys, for the most part, most people can figure out how to catch one giant in a day down here. Right. So everybody that goes generally, and then you got, you know, all these little boats that are all sudden commercial boats, you know, they used to do recreational and now they're, they're selling fish, you know? Right. Right. So yeah. you know, trying to offset think, their, their hobby. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it sucks for the guys that do this for a living, but you know, at the same time, it is an open access fishery and yeah. unless they change something, but well, uh, we want to talk a lot more about the commercial stuff, but um, let's start with for the people that don't know you. Let's start with who you are, where you're from, and and what was it that really was the defining moment for you that said this is what I want to do, this is what I'm going after, this is my passion, my love, and I want to make it my profession. My name is Mark De Blasio. I'm from the state of New Jersey. I've been fishing in the Northeast pretty much my whole life. You know, tuna fishing for me was something that I loved to do at an early age with my dad. When I was around 15 years old, I met a gentleman that enabled me to get to different places that I could get to when I was younger. When I was fishing with my dad, we had a smaller boat. And realistically, 20, 30 miles offshore was about our maximum. And, you know, back in, we're talking in the 70s now, the fishing was still pretty good inshore. And, uh, you know, but the canyons were a dream. You know, I met, I met a gentleman named Mike Jacobs when I was 15. He had a vessel, a boat that was able to make those runs and the desire to make those runs. In fact, the boat name was Desire, interestingly <laughs> enough. So I started going with him when I was 15 and uh, it opened up a whole new world, you know, you know, catching big eyes, catching yellow fins and uh, giant blue fins. You know, we did giant bluefin fishing out of Montauk and out of the New Jersey mud hole. And it just was a real, real eye opener from catching school bluefin tuna to catching 250, 300 pound big eyes, eight, 900 pound bluefins, you know. And right. that's what really, I had the fishing bug from, from, you know, a very little, a little, from the time I was a little kid, but that really ignited the offshore bug when I was 15. And, you know, as I got older and started with my schooling, my college, and and then eventually my my career, which was in the print advertising business, my passion and my thoughts were always about fishing. You know, doing doing work, going to work in New York City, but thinking about getting offshore on the weekend and going to the canyon and hopefully having a good trip. So you know, that's how I got started in it. And mm -hmm. around two thousand four, the printing business was changing. The internet was affecting the the quantity of print ads that were being done in magazines, more stuff was going on the internet, less was being done in magazines. There was uh so we saw a decline in that business. And around that same time, um, I was offered a position running the Canyon runner or one of the Canyon runner boats, I should say at that time it was a 58 Viking. And I, you know, I took it with, uh, with, with a game plan, I took the position with a game plan of doing it for a year and kind of exploring it, but then going back to my regular gig because I didn't see the financial side of it working. Right. There's just enough money in charter fishing, just doing a summer of charters, say 40 or 50 charters 
there wasn't enough money in it, you know, but uh, here we are, you know, 20, you know, 20 years later. And here we are <laughs> still charter fishing, you know. Well, basically, how'd you get that offer to, to run the Canyon Runner? How'd that even come to fruition? It came about by chance, really. Uh, I got a call from Basil over at BHP Tackle one day and he said, hey, do you want to do a trip on the Fantastic out of New Jersey? And I knew nothing about New Jersey. At this point, I was Long Island-based. I fished out of Long Island. I grew up on Long Island. And um, I knew nothing about Manasquan Inlet or New Jersey. I mean, I wasn't worried about the fishing part. Mm-hmm. I was worried about how do I get the boat in and out of the inlet? You know, where do we go from there? And uh, But uh, long story short, I ended up doing it. And uh, it was a 44 Henriques. And it was docked right down the dock from the Canyon Runner. We had a very successful trip. And when we got back to the dock, uh, Adam LaRosa was on the dock and he kind of said, who the hell are you? You know, like, <laughs> I don't, I know all the captains in New Jersey. Who are you? And, you know, and I, I responded and said, I'm Mark. And he said, where do you normally fish? And I said, I fish with Mike on a desire. And he said, really? He said, oh, no kidding. He said, you fish with Mike? I said, yeah, I've been fishing with Mike since I was 15 years old, you know, and uh, I run his boat a lot and spent considerable amount of time in the canyons with him and he said you know he said well give me your number and let's stay in touch and shortly thereafter he called me he said hey we're getting a second boat next year would you be interested in running it or being co-captain with with somebody else on it and you know we discussed the finances and stuff like that and at the time the printing business was still a pretty good business for me and the amount of money he was talking about me making in a year was about what I was making in a month doing printing, <laughs> you know? So <laughs> I was like, uh, I don't see how this is going to work, but <laughs> the hell with it. Let's do it. Uh-huh. And w- I went for it. And, you know, listen, the first couple of years, if I didn't have money put away, I probably couldn't have survived doing it, but I had money put away and I loved fishing and was living a dream, you know, just not getting paid enough for it. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, I got Pretty to do what well. I love, you know? Yeah, You know, and I, I don't have to tell you, you know, the old <laughs> saying, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. And and, and that's really how it felt. Absolutely. Well, what was the program like uh, during your days at Canyon Runner? You, know, you were you know, obviously you're fishing out of North Jersey, chasing tunas all summer. And, and, yeah. Um, so give us a rundown of your, your typical. <clears throat> so, you know, back in those days, I remember it very clearly. Uh, June 20th or 21st was always our first trip of the season. Nobody went to the canyons really back then until July 4th. Yeah. We were always shark fishing in June. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And people felt like, well, the tune is probably, the water's not right. The fish probably aren't there yet. Or or if it is, it's probably just blue fins. Mm -hmm. So June, we had a charter that wanted to go on June 20th or 21st every year because it was the longest day of the year per se. You know, okay. being the, the most amount of daylight. And that's that was their reason for going on that date. <laughs> and we, so that's when we would start and we would fish. For the most part, we fished back to back trips, you know, weather permitting, meaning we would do an overnighter. We'd come back to the dock. We'd clean the fish, wash the boat, refuel, re ice. And two and a half, three hours later, we were on our way back out. So <laughs> it was a pretty brutal schedule. But that, given the limited window of time that we had, in our season that was the only way to get all the trips in you know when would you typically end in october yeah i would say that we would run through middle 
middle of October, sometimes into November, depending upon um, the fishing and the weather. And, you know, back then we had phenomenal chunk bites at night. I mean, it was the fall was always what we look forward to. You'd have these these fall chunking trips where you'd get to the edge right before dark and set up for the night. And by daylight, you were on your way home with a limited yellow fence. Yeah. All caught on the chunk at night, you know, and we don't see a lot of that anymore. Yeah, I know. That was that was incredible. That was like a given every single year there in the fall. It was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> you could experiment really with all kinds of jigs and poppers too. It was wild. You could get those things to eat when they were schooled up behind your boat. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was incredible. But the rest of the year I had really didn't have a whole lot to do the rest of the year, you know. So I had to find creative ways to try to continue making money, whether it be building spreader bars for Canyon Runner or building rods. And then I started fishing in Moorhead City for for bluefins during the winter, running uh, John Sowerby's boat for the first couple of years. And then eventually we brought the Canyon Runner down there. Love Moorhead City, but, you know, the bite um, around 2010, the bite kind of slowed up there for a while. And it's come back, you know, it's come back, but it's more of a live bait fishery now that is better suited to the center console guys. We're busy with other things at that time of the year, like in November and December. Uh, we're busy with blackfish charters out of New Jersey. So we don't we don't participate in that right now. Um, we just wait until the Oregon Inlet season starts in January. Okay, gotcha. Well, so you went from Canyon Runner and then you had this new opportunity with, with Blue Runner. And, and let's talk about what you have turned that into today and what you're doing now. Yeah, I mean, uh, Joe... Joe Mealy, my partner in some of the boats and the uh, the owner of the Blue Runner, he worked with me, believe it or not, uh, at Canyon Runner as a co-captain, as a mate, wherever we needed them. And, you know, we became friendly over the years and had a lot of respect for each other, and um, which continues to this day. And, you know, Joe is just a, I can't ask for a better, a better partner. You know, he's a great guy and he's been uh, uh, wonderful, you know, for me as far as being able to build a business and, and having my back and just a really, really good guy. So, um, but anyway, (laughs) yeah, it really is. And, you know, working with him on the Canyon runner and he had a 38 Henriquez named the blue runner at that time. No, no relation to, you know, Canyon runner. He just, the boat was named blue runner and he had named it that long before he ever worked at Canyon runner. He said to me one day, he said, you know, I really think I want to build a 60 Richie Allen. You know, he says, I really like the boat and, I want to do more stuff like in the Bahamas. I want to travel. I want to get into the point where I want to retire and spend some time in the islands, spend the winters traveling through the Bahamas to the Turks and Caicos and, and stuff like that. And right. we got involved in building this boat and not with the intention of me running it full time, but maybe with the intention of me running it during the winter uh, out, of, out of Stewart, Florida. Yeah, fill in and, that time, that gap to fill in that gap and it, it, it actually worked out really well i'd stay busy all summer with the canyon runner and then have have a winter gig and um I, even though i missed i missed out on the bluefin thing in the winter which i really enjoy but i was i was exploring new places that i had never been you know all through the bahamas and you know picking your brain picking joe trainer's brain and you know getting some really good ideas about where to go and what to see and how to fish and it was it was great you know um, you guys put and, some time in for sure. Yeah, yeah, we had a lot of success down there, and it was a lot of fun. Um, after I think it was around 
five years, maybe four or five years of doing that. You know, my, I had young kids at home and Joe kind of had to go back to work a little bit with his businesses, some things he needed to get back in tr on track from him not being in the office for a long time. So our fishing program kind of slowed down down there. And at, in the interim, we had built Waterproof, which is a 42 Northern Bay down east style boat that, you know, we built up in Maine. And this boat is perfectly suited for the Outer Banks with the weather and uh, the fuel efficiency, you know, and all of that. So it kind of coincided with when we got Waterproof completed. And uh, so we kind of switched it up and I stopped going to Florida and I started coming here. Yeah, it's a cool you know? boat, too. I think it looks pretty. Yeah. Yeah. I love this boat. It's uh, I'm sitting on it right now, but it's a, uh, <laughs> it's a really incredible boat. You know, it really is. Definitely perfect for what you're doing down there. You can go every day. If you don't Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As long as we can get across the bar, we can fish. <laughs> it. So, and that's fine for, you know, when we're commercial fishing, it's uh, you know, we can, we can fish in some pretty big stuff, you know, so you have the blue runner and you have the waterproof and then end game a, a few years ago, Joe, Things are always transitioning in Joe's life. So Joe Joe bought a house in, in Florida on the water and has a, a beautiful property. And he he loves his fishing. I mean, you know, <laughs> even if he doesn't I saw want that to go in the Florida, Bahamas that one day yeah. you guys, he's into it. He is. He's really into it. You and know? anything. He doesn't seem to be particular about any certain species. He just wants to go catch. He, you know, yeah, I think, you know, a lot like us. You know, like when I say us, I mean you, me, Joe Trainer. We Joe loves the hunt. You know, he loves exploring. He loves figuring out new stuff, how to catch new things, where to catch new things. Um, instead of doing the same old thing every day, he's an explorer, and I love that about him. And we had a lot of fun just kind of winging it and learning stuff. You know, of course, you know some things don't pan out, but a lot of things do pan out, and you know, you find incredible stuff that you never thought existed. You know, so. Uh, you know, that was a lot of fun uh, doing that. And uh, so long story short, with the end game, Joe had a vision of maybe taking Blue Runner out of the charter service for for the rest of its life and replacing it with something else that was a little more economical to own and run. You know, redoing Blue Runner and kind of keeping it private in Florida for the year for the year round thing with him. OK. And um <clears throat> So that's kind of what our, where our plans kind of went. And we decided we would buy an ocean because it was affordable. It made sense with the charter business. It's still, we wouldn't lose a lot of fishing days. You know, it's still a 56 ocean can go in most of the same days that the blue runner could go. Um, yeah, it's big enough. It's big enough, you know, and affordable and had cat power and, and you know, it was a great boat. So we decided to run all three boats for a few years which we did the last couple of years. And just after a couple of years, uh, Joe decided to build a, uh, a 35 invincible cat for Florida and kind of said, Hey, I'm not going to be going to the Bahamas, you know, on these long trips like I used to. So this is going to be my daily when I want to go fishing for the day. This is what I'm going to run. I'm not going to use blue runner that much. So we kind of reverse plan decided to, upgrade blue runner with some some things we put we're putting a sonar in it right now at island boat works oh nice which, yeah i'm really excited about that watch out tunas <laughs> yeah <laughs> i hope so you're already a menace to the tuna population now with that thing <laughs> yeah now i got no excuses <laughs> if i don't catch them so <laughs> yeah, yep. tell people yep. tell people it's not working it's not working today <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
So that's cool. You're getting it in now. You're getting into Blue Runner. Yeah, yeah. It's actually in. Um, both just came out of the shed. You know, we had some other work done. We got a few you more. You go with the Bruno or the Simrad? We went with the Simrad, and the main reason there was multiple reasons, but the main reason was that it's gyro stabilized in the unit, and right. we do not have a sea keeper in the boat. So, right. without a sea keeper, I felt like the gyro stabilized unit would be better for us. I've been told by a lot of people that Simrad's come out with a new a new board for theirs, um, which we have in our unit. All the new ones that are shipping has a new board in it. It's it's dramatically changed the performance of really? of the sonar. Yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, so if you know if you guys out there that don't have this new board, they probably want to get an upgrade for it. But um, I, I heard that it's dramatically changed the performance. And the other thing that I've heard is that. The Simrad did fine with tunas. It was a little more challenging with the Marlin, which Asked not that I'm not interested in Marlin, but I primarily focus on tunas. So, you know, for me, that's yeah. fine. You know, absolutely. You've spent so much time on the water over the past few decades and you've seen a lot of different things. And what I more so want to talk to you about is what you've seen. And for lack of a better term, the progression of fishing over the years of New Jersey tuna fishing and also just tuna fishing on the East Coast in general. What have you seen from long ago when you first started and throughout the years and what's changed and what's changed for the better and the worse? Or it, or if you think it's just different movements or the fish are getting smarter or I'd love to hear you weigh in on all your thoughts about basically the progression of tuna fishing over the years. Well, I think, you know. We have to break it down. If we're going to say tuna fishing, we have to break it down into canyon fishing and and giant bluefin fishing or bluefin fishing, inshore fishing, um, because they've both reacted differently over the past 20, 30 years, you know? Right. Um, so let's let's talk about canyon fishing at first. You know, in the early years when I went there, the canyons were virtually untouched by anybody. You never saw, you know, the first few years I went, we rarely saw another boat. Yeah. And um, I mean, you certainly wouldn't expect there to be 30 or 40 boats out on a on a weekend in in the Hudson Canyon in, in September, you know, back then. Now you got to go and it's blowing 25 on a Wednesday to be by yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those are the days we look forward to. Yeah. I can yeah. Be by myself for a change, you know, but, um, you know, it was a different fishery. As I said, we didn't really expect to catch yellowfins before July 4th. And we would go late into the fall, often into November, catching yellowfins. And it was, there was a great night chunk bite that we discussed earlier. Yeah. You can count on it from early August to the end of the season. You could count on loading up every night on yellowfins, quality yellowfins, just, just chunk fishing, you know, just bait fishing. The troll bite was good, but you know, that was more of an early season thing. And I, I, I remember my, my, um, you know, back, back in the eighties, it was, it was, the fishing was just steady, good, pretty much day and night. And then it would get more challenging as we got into the 90s and the early 2000s. Like, then, like I remember I, I started with Canyon Runner, I think 2004. We dreaded July. Like July was one of those months where if you went out and caught a half a dozen yellowfins, it was like, okay, we had a decent trip. What do you and, think the reason was for that back then? Water temps or just I don't know if they I don't know if they took longer to get up to us you know from where they were coming from because maybe the water temps were cooler in the spring you know we've seen a, a progression of the not only the season starting earlier but other species inshore species that we would normally never see 
in New Jersey waters 30, 40 years ago are now starting to show up. Kobe is and yeah. things like that. Sheep's head, you know, stuff like that. It does seem like that in general species are shifting to the north and to the east as the decades go by. Ye- yellow fins maybe were part of that. Or maybe it was just, I, I remember that we didn't really use satellite imagery until the early 2000s. Um, we didn't so when you went out there I, I you know we used to go out there like mid-june or sometimes july 4th was our first trip and we didn't know we just went to the hudson and hoped that the water was there right. or we go to the toms and hope that the water was there and you didn't know what to expect you didn't know if you were going to have 65 degree green water or 75 degree blue water um <laughs> you didn't know you know and i remember uh, when we first started looking at sat shots we're like, well, this is what it tells us, and this is where we're supposed to go. And I remember the water was pushing into the southwest corner of the Hudson. And Mike said to me, he goes, Mark, the Hudson's been stone dead. I know guys that have been going for the last 10 days and haven't caught anything. And I'm like, this is what the water says. Like, this is like our first time doing it. Right. I'm like, let's try it. And we went, and we absolutely smoked it. It was incredible. <laughs> and that's when I became a believer in, like, using satellite imagery and following water and and using the modern day tools. You know? What but, did your spread uh, look like back then? Your trolling spread back then when you're just heading out to the Hudson and Tom fishing, like what would you normally tow behind a boat for your tuna spread? A lot of plastic. <laughs> <laughs> we did not fish ballyhoos at all. Um, <laughs> we fished a lot of, a lot of single green machines. It sounds, you know, I mean, it sounds very basic and it was Um, single green machines. We fished some jets, Mako jets and stuff like that. And we fished these big Yamashita squid bars. These bars were probably, I don't know, 36 to 48 inches, 42 to 48 inches wide. And they had like 13 inch Yamashita squids on it. Wow. Um, Yeah. And no I mean, joke there. <laughs> no joke. And we smoked the big eyes on them. We would smoke the big eyes on them. And uh, I know guys that still do that. There's there's a few select few guys out of Long Island that still they don't care about catching elephants. They just want to catch big eyes, and that's what they pull. They pull these giant squid bars, and they still catch fish that way. I was gonna say, but, I wonder um, why that went away. Like you don't you don't hear that much down our way anymore in like Central Jersey or South, Southern Jersey. No, no, you really don't. Yeah. You really don't. And, and, you know, I really didn't becoming a Ballyhoo fisherman until I joined Canyon Runner, and they fished Ballyhoo. So I kind of, you know, we went with, like, the the Pinrig Ballyhoo on the, the little Islander tracker, you know, on right. flat lines. And uh, that was kind of, like, my introduction to that. But when I went to Moorhead City and I started fishing for giant bluefins in 2005, I really had to get myself up to speed on – how to really rig a good bait and started with split bills and stuff like that. So that's when my, my switch into that really heavy duty bait fishing, which I think is the key, like for catching the bigger fish, the smarter fish, you know, they, they want a more natural presentation. And where you're you feeling know. between the, the eel tails, like the Ronzi's and the Wolfpack Ahi tails versus the Ballyhoo. What, what are your feelings on between the two? I, I go back and forth. Um, I go back and forth, uh, listen, the, the Ron Z for me has been phenomenal. I've caught tons of fish on it. It's, it's almost impossible to not rig properly, but, but Ballyhoo is hard to beat too, you know, for but sure. for, 
for tournament fishing, um, where we have to, we're forced to use circle hooks with the ballyhoos. I do fish quite a few of the artificial tails and I've won the mid Atlantic a few times on a Ronzi. Um, and, uh, I mean, just the other day we were out bluefin fishing and I think we caught two giants on ballyhoos and <clears throat> one of the leaders came up, you know, we caught the fish, the leader was chafed up by the hook. I cut the, cut the chafe off. And I said, you know, what? instead of making a whole nother ballyhoo rig, I'm just going to crimp a hook on and throw a, throw a Ron Z on it. And uh -huh. we threw it out there and it was only out a few minutes and we hooked the bluefin that we fought for three hours um, on a one thirty. <laughs> this thing was all, you know, all a 700, you know, we got him to the boat and let him go, but that was right on a Ron Z, you know? So uh, I could think of maybe three or four years ago down here, there was a winter that I never defrosted a pack of ballyhoo the whole oh, winter. Wow. All we fished was Ron Z's. That's, that was it. But it seems like they show preferences at times. You know, there are times where they want the Ronzi and there are times they don't. I so, agree. I just had trouble in the tournaments with the circle hook tuna baits. They'll they'll get it, but I end up pulling a lot of hooks on the circle hooks. I've, just, I've really struggled. That's why I've kind of moved to Ronzi entirely for if I am tuna fishing in a Marlin tournament, but hard not to have a couple of ballyhoo out there because uh, you're totally right i've had days where that's all they'll eat they don't want yep. plastic but i've also had the, the opposite too like you said but uh yeah um, we caught a we caught a, a 175 big eye in the white marlin open this year and we caught it on a ronzi okay so yeah. you know, i felt pretty good about that in a fleet of 30 boats going around through the pilot whales we were one of maybe two or three boats that got a bite that day so a big eye bite, I should say. Right, right. Uh, they work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they definitely work, man. There's yeah. no doubt. But um, back we were talking about the big squid bars and fishing, you know, back in the thousands, and you're following water. So, yeah. So I mean, you know, in the in the two thousands, early two thousands, for me, fishing with Mike on a desire, it was all plastic. We didn't fish ballyhoo at all. Mm -hmm. Um, it was all plastic, and we did very, very well. I mean, there was no. I mean, listen, I think that fishing plastic also is an art, just like fishing bait. You know, it's not just throw it out there. I mean, you know, getting it to run right, positioning it on the wake properly so it's the leaders out of the water and the thing's got some action and it's moving. It's just like marlin fishing with plugs, you know. You got to you gotta look at what you got back there and try to get it working the best it can for the conditions you have on that given day, adjusting the halyard height on the rigger yep. to, get, to get things moving and give them a little wiggle without dragging a bunch of leader through the water. I mean, there's, there's a million little tricks and tips. You know, I'm sure, you know, yeah. and, uh, but it's mean a good mate and a bad mate too. They're, they're yeah. working at something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, a lot of people just in this era assume that trolling plastic is for, you know, the novice and, and for people that are unskilled at other things, but it's really not. I mean, I'll give you the, the sterling tracker bar I, I probably catch more yellow fins on a sterling tracker than anything else right. doesn't mean i'm not going to have bally who are ron's ease out in my spread i i catch more big eyes on that stuff but oh, for yellow God. fins i probably catch more yellow fins on a, on a tracker bar than anything else all right what size yeah. the 18 or 36 inch um i like them both i run the bigger bars closer and i run the smaller bars further i really yeah. like their later bar, the newest bar, I guess it came out a year a year ago or something, was the 22-inch dial tracker. And that's what I really like because um, you can adjust the angle of the wing 
and you could turn it from side to side so that you're no longer buying port and starboard bars. Because a lot of times, you know, we'd run out of port bars and have 10 starboard bars and I'd have to go order more bars. But now you just flip the, <laughs> you flip the wing around and you got, you went from a starboard bar to a port bar, you know? Right. Um, right. So we just buy, we buy the bars and we can, we can switch them from side to side. And we could also adjust how far out they run. We can adjust it for different weather conditions. You want it pulling harder out on a calm day. You want more action out of it. And then the same thing, adjusting the halyard height and the distance, be, you know, away from the boat to get it. I know, I know when Steve developed it, he was thinking, get it out in clean water. I firmly believe that they work better because there's a lot of side to side motion, almost like you were jigging it. And if you can get that thing to skip a little bit, you know, pull out and then skip back, you get like an erratic swimming motion. And that really seems to trigger a lot of bites. That makes, that makes complete sense. I actually never thought about that way. It's a good point. Yeah. Back to it's fishing. Most, most of our fishing is all in the details. The difference between the guys that do really well consistently and the guys that don't, it's usually small details. 100%. As the troll bite kept, kept progressing, you started to learn more about reading water. What, what more did you learn just from as you continue to read more water and not just looking at temperatures, looking at color and, I don't know if you look at salinity or any of that kind of stuff or altimetry and some people get real crazy with it. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts on all that with, with the progression of tuna fishing from when you first started to now? So when I first started, there was, there was nothing. You went out blind. Our big decision was what were we going to fish the East wall of the Hudson or the West wall of the Hudson to start, you know, that was our big decision. <laughs> now it's like, am I going to Atlantis or am I going to the Washington? Right. <laughs> yeah. Know? Or, or anywhere in between. Yeah. <laughs> Things have changed quite a bit, you know, for sure for us, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. So we started, you know, initially we started looking at temperature, just strictly temperature. And in the early part of the season, pretty easy to see where the blue water was and where the green water was just strictly based on temperature. Right. And as the years progressed, we learned from some unsuccessful trips in July and August that the shelf water warms up the green water warms up and becomes the same temperature or close to the same temperature as the blue water many times and you could no longer really use temperature as your only guide um, right. for where the water might be so we started uh, i think the early days looking at offshore satellite services len called it turbidity other places called it chlorophyll but it generally showed you where the clean water was and where the dirty water was and you know we started using that more often than temperature. I mean, it's, it's good to know what the ultimate temperature is. It's also good to know that your temperature gauge on your boat is relatively close to what the satellite shots show. You it's know, very helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you fish next to somebody and they say, "What temperature you got?" And say, "I'm in 72 degree water." And the guy says, "Well, I'm in 65," and he's 100 feet away from you. I mean, is it possible? It's possible, but it's unlikely. Yeah, in May. <laughs> yeah in may or or in the outer banks in the winter i mean yeah. you know yeah you know we see 20 30 degree breaks over 100 feet but back home in the summer you know that's not really a, a realistic thing chlorophyll turbidity whatever you want to call it that's what we really started focusing on more as the years progressed and in the last few years i've been really playing with salinity a lot I know some of them are models, but there's also like over 3,000 buoys out there that are measuring salinity. And then the rest of it is computer-generated models that make the maps. 
but it a lot of times it'll give you a guide of where the water is based on salinity when you don't have a clear shot for five days, you know, when you can't see a temperature shot or a, uh, or a chlorophyll shot and the chlorophyll shots are really hard to get because they only take them during the day. Right. Where te- temperature they can do at night. Salinity is always, I guess they're, they're getting readings from all these floating buoys and they're making a computer generated map from their readings and higher salinity indicates blue water, lower salinity indicates green water. Um, so we use those as an alternative tool when we don't have a clear shot for a while. And then the other thing I do is I try to plot how fast most of the most of the water in our area eddies anyway, move from the eastern canyons down to the west towards the Hudson. And then once they hit the Hudson, they start moving southwest towards to Wilmington and Norfolk and down that way. So you can kind of predict how fast that edge is moving by looking at historical. How far did it move in the last five days before we stopped getting clean shots? And you could start predicting about where it might be. It's not an exact science, but yeah, but you can put find it within a few miles at least and yeah. do it if you don't quite find it. Right. Right. Unless it's a also... crazy phenomenon, it's sucking it offshore like another offshore eddy. I mean, you, you know, it's going to be moving down the bank. And right. It's going to move down the bank. Yeah. Filaments are a whole different story because they shoot in from offshore and who knows where they land. And, you know, <laughs> then then they get sucked back out in a few days, you know. What yeah. I mean? So that's a whole different thing. But uh, they can I be. Like that's all we get anymore in my area. Yeah. <laughs> Filaments. Last year, last year was a challenge with water. Like one of the one of the worst years I think I've ever seen as far as water went. There was a giant eddy out to the east, which was loaded with fish. We fished it out of Montauk and Block Island in July, and it was just incredible. But it never wanted to move. It just stayed out there. It just it was like it never moved. You know, we didn't see that until the end of the season. I know. I was frothing. I was like, oh, we're going to get that here in a little bit. And it never made it. Yeah. <laughs> I know it was disappointing. Yeah. But, you know, despite that, we still had, like, at least we did, we had a fair, I and mean, we had to run a lot to the east early in the season. I was running, you know, east of block and stuff like that, which, you know, on an overnighter, it's 120 miles. We're burning more fuel, but it's, it's doable. You know, it's yeah. manageable. Yeah. That and, definitely. That makes sense on an overnighter for sure. Go where you got to go. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And then, you know, the midshore bite started to develop in, in july and through august and you know into september and even october so we always had that as a backup plan me personally i'd rather fish in the canyon you know where you can roam and fish structure and right you're not you're not in the middle of 40 center consoles and i'm not knocking center consoles i mean that's their fishery and i get it but i just like when there's options for us for sure. on an overnight trip you know we don't necessarily have to stop at the at the triple wrecks, if it's crowded, we can keep going and go to the Hudson or we can go to the Toms or we can go up to block Canyon and, and catch tunas. You know, that's, it's always nice to have that option. Absolutely. It's always been a, we're still on the Canyon thing. So it seems to be quite the argument I hear pop up a lot. A lot of people were saying, Oh, there's a lot less tunas, or a lot less tunas, and especially like down my way. And I mean, we just, we don't see them as consistently the past couple of years, but before that we had, you know, it's, it's always been cyclical to me, but they're somewhere. I mean, and last year proving they were just all to the Northeast. I mean, it was, 
pretty epic up there for a while. Like lights out. What what are your thoughts on it? You think that we are starting to see less elephant tunas and big eye tunas, or is it just their movements are just adapting to the water movements? Well, I mean, I say if if you're if you're comparing it to thirty or forty years ago, I'd say we'll we'll probably have less yellow fins than we did back then okay. overall. But you know, I think there are over a decade there are cycles, and I think a lot of it boils down to bait movement, water movement, um, ultimately surface temperature. Like I think, I think the guys to the south suffer from the water being warmer than it used to be. And the fish now migrating further north to get into a more comfortable temperature range than what they, what they used to do 20 years ago when you would catch yellow fins on lumpy bottom and, you right. know, in the, in the canyons down there all summer and Massey's and chicken bone and ham bone. I mean, those areas always held fish, the hot dog, you know, think that maybe like, you know, we're seeing a shift to the Northeast in general. Like you said and earlier, I agree. They're, they're spending more time during our prime fishing season. They come through there early in the year, or sometimes they don't even come through early in the year because the water is offshore. But on the return trip in the fall, it's probably a lot of them are coming through almost after guys are wrapped up for the season. Yeah. Or yeah. the inshore water gets too cold and they push out back out to the canyons and go south. Those areas, those midshore areas down south aren't really getting a fair shot at them. I I remember, and I'll use the bluefins as an example. I remember in 2008 that the Chicken Canyon was just, and and no one fished for them. It was just wall to wall to wall bluefins, as many bluefins as you could catch in the Chicken Canyon, and also the Atlantic Princess. And that area, aside from random encounters, now really doesn't hold a lot of bluefins anymore. They've shifted oh. to the Northeast. They're out off of Rhode Island and. Massachusetts and I think ultimately you know I mean yeah there's there was some fish inshore this year and there was bluefin south of Long Island but it's not the same fishery that we had 15 years ago yeah you know, I, I think that I remember when I was in we were always chunking you know hot dogs yeah. bottom 19 mm -hmm. and we were catching bluefins all the way through to like August some years <laughs> yeah yeah no I mean yeah. I, but I think you even one or place in a couple white marlin opens with blue fins in august yeah yep yep and certainly the ocean city tuna tournament we we did blue fins in that in like mid-july um a couple of years we placed in that with blue fins and right you know it's just uh it's one of them things you know like i just think that and it could be cyclical but i think it's more of a trend um that the fish are migrating to the northeast a little bit you know over the decade from from over ten, a 10 year span, you're going to see a slight shift to the Northeast year over year. Well, before we jump into bluefin, I just, you know, food for thought. This is just something that just from having fish in the Caribbean, historically the tuna fishing for us has always been better at home. At home, I mean, I'm in Atlantic, usually earlier in the season, later in the season when the water is usually a little cooler and they're moving. And I always wondered why that was. I mean, I know typically they, they can, you know, regulate their body temperature probably a lot better in those type of waters. But why does it not matter to the Caribbean fish? I mean, it's just so strange to me. Like we're catching yellowfins and not not just the Allisons. We are catching yellowfins, like true yellowfins. I don't know what the difference is, and I still can't find anybody to give me that answer. But 
they don't seem to care about 82 degree water at all. And even in um, Curacao last year, I won the fads we were fishing. It was loaded with large elephants and medium-sized elephants, like 40 to 60 pounders. And by large elephants, I mean one to 120. And then also nice sickle fin Allison's. Also, everything else was in there too. You had big eyes from 40 to 80 pounds. You had <laughs> skipjacks. You had black fins. It was insane. And the reason I know all these fish were there is not only did we catch them, but we actually, at the end of the day, I mean, it was an epic day. We jumped in because I was marketing it on the sonar. Like, this just looks insane. We need to see what this looks like. And it was one of my uh, my friends that was with me, a big diver. He was like, we got to get in. And we got in. It was the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life, Mark. Like, the top five feet was, like, all rainbow runners or blue runners. And then under that were skipjacks. Under that were the big eyes in, like, a 40-pound range. And then the elephants and big eyes were mixed together below that. And all of a sudden, you see an Allison come up and chase a skipjack. It was unreal. But why do these fish not care about 80-degree water when it seems like ours do? Well, you know, maybe it's not about water temperature. Maybe it's about the bait that they're chasing. You sure. know, maybe maybe, maybe the water, the warmer water pushes the sand eels further north, you know, and then they follow the sand eels. Maybe it's not necessarily the fish itself, but what they're feeding on. I love that answer. That's exactly what I had in mind, but I want to see what your thoughts were. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, listen, we all know blue uh, yellow fins can tolerate, you know, 80 degree water all day long. I mean, you guys marlin fishing out in 800 fathoms, see them all the time. You know, yeah. in the middle of the summer, in all July and August, they're, you know, out in a thousand fathoms in the Washington and stuff. So they, we know they're out there and we know they like that hot blue water. They got to have something to eat or they're going to keep moving. Makes complete sense. That. And it's always wondered, a lot of people always ask, and I'm like, oh, I mean, I, I always kind of answer the way you do, but sometimes I wonder, I'm like, huh, maybe it's just different bodies of fish are just used to different things, I don't know, different temperatures, more comfortable, I don't know. Like, uh, aside from the bait, I wonder if there is anything else that goes with it. I just was curious to see what your thoughts were. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm also, you know, like, I always think about, like, the fish you see in the Gulf of Mexico with the big sickle fins and, yeah. you know. They're much bigger. The yellow, I'm talking about yellow fins, yeah. the ones you catch down in Grenada and Curacao. And how come we don't see those fish back home? You know, how come we don't catch that class of fish anymore? We used to. We yeah. used to. Is it just overfished? But I mean, we did, a, we did a tagging study a few years ago on yellow fins. And we, wor we worked with the University of Maine. And they, they were trying to prove that our yellow fins made the loop around the ocean and ended up off the west coast of Africa during the winter or uh -huh. a certain time of the year. Gulf of Guinea. And, well yeah. Yeah. And they were and they were being, you know, sucked up in the in the same nets that Darkest and Bumblebee and all those big tuna companies were were trying to catch really trying to catch skipjacks. But they were scooping up a lot of juvenile yellow fins and a lot of juvenile big eyes in the process. And that's what they were trying to prove. And I think that they did get some tag returns down there to try to you know that actually solidified what what their thought process was oh wow uh, but but you know if you go back to that that these fish move and they're just not local to our area why are there 150 pound sickle fin, sickle fin allisons in other parts of the atlantic and we rarely see them yeah yeah i always wonder that too i mean i haven't caught one since the early 2000s <laughs> i think yeah. 
Yeah. It's been a while. I mean, you hear of a couple called every year, but it's always by the Marlin guys out deep. And Yeah. Yeah. No and you do get the long liners catching some ones, you know, some some 150, 140, 150 pound dressed yellow fins out in the deep during the summer, especially in July. So, you know, it's just it makes you wonder, like, is it just that they don't come up on the shelf anymore? Or do they stay offshore? Right. I don't know. Or maybe they just don't make it up into our area. But, you know, you would think with the with the known movements of yellowfin around the ocean that we would see the same thing that they see in other parts of the world or other parts of the Atlantic, I should say. Even large yellowfins. I mean, we only see a couple over 80 every year. Um, yeah. Personally. Yeah. Anything, any of any of them over 60 to, to cow these days for yellowfins yeah. up our way here. Yeah, we caught a uh, we we had a ninety seven pounder this year ninety ninety seven or ninety eight and a half pounder or something like that in the uh, in the Montauk Canyon Challenge this year that we caught out around Beach Canyon, you know. And I was like, I looked at it and I said, this is one of the biggest yellowfins I've caught in the last twenty years. Yeah, no, nope. I mean, w- once in a while you catch a real. I think a couple of years ago we found one that was like sixty two inches or something like that. It was probably one hundred thirty pounds, but you don't see them very regularly. Definitely not. Well, how about the bluefin fishing? I would cover the, the canyon. Let's let's go inshore. Your thoughts of the the progression over the years of the bluefin yeah. and the fishing in general? Yeah, I mean, I uh, I think that bluefin in general has rebounded in a tremendous way. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious from all the bluefins that are caught all summer in New England, and you know we're hitting our quotas every every the monthly sub quotas and stuff like that. They're all getting hit, you know, with the commercial fishing, but also the the smaller fish and the amount of fish that were off the Jersey coast this the, the, the entire fall. I mean, some of the probably the best bluefin fishing that's ever been had in November and December off of New Jersey. Yeah, no was, doubt was this year, and I mean we see it. We see it down here in North Carolina with with the small quota that we have. We're running through it faster and faster every year because the fishing is so good. I mean, uh, we 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 were out fishing the other day, and I mean, we literally did not go more than five minutes of trolling without a, having a having a bite mm-hmm. in the entire day. So I mean, there's there's really an abundance of bluefins in the ocean right now, which is and I'm very happy about. It. It's a great thing. Um, but I, you know, I'd say that that had a lot to do with proper management. They they cut the quotas down quite a well, not they didn't cut the commercial quota down. They cut the recreational um, limits to more manageable uh, limits. Late nineties, early two thousands. I mean, prior to that, it was pretty much a wide open fishery. You know, you'd see head boats coming in from tuna trips with eighty or ninety bluefins in the box. <laughs> uh, and I think even just. Like I remember fishing with Mike on a desire in the early 2000s when there was a good October Hudson bite uh, chunking these fish during a day on the east wall. And the average fish was 65 to 80 inches. And you could keep six a day or six wow, a trip. Yeah, that's a lot. You know what I mean? Every every recreational boat could keep six. I remember how painful it was for him when he changed the regulations. He loved catching his fish and to, to throw a 65-incher back killed him <laughs> you know he was just <laughs> like i can't believe i'm doing this i gotta let this thing go and i'm like yeah you know <laughs> and, uh, but uh you know i think that that along with some good year classes some you know some really good year classes um we and and some good management we saw 
we saw a huge rebound in bluefins. Um, they were talking about put them on the the endangered species list. What seven or eight years ago, they were trying to get some some legislation or something to say that they were almost extinct in the ocean, and now right. you can walk across them. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it definitely so, didn't manage well for sure. Yeah, yeah. So you know, listen. I mean, I'm not about a tremendous amount of regulation, but I also think that we got to manage the resource so that it, we can continue to do what we do and people can continue to enjoy sport fishing. It's not smart to, to knock yourself out of a fishery. You know what I mean? Correct. So yeah. I'm all about reasonable limits based on good data and looking at trends. You know, one thing I would say is, you you know, like you have to base it on real trends. You can't say, well, because there's no longer yellow fins or, or blue fins on the lumps off of Maryland, that there's no blue fins in the ocean. They just, they're, pattern has shifted and where they where they spend their summers has shifted but if you look at it as an overall picture yeah they're not in maryland anymore during the summer but there there's tons of fish in massachusetts so right you know you look at it as an overall ecosystem and decisions based on that and hopefully hopefully we can continue fishing for a long time i hope so that is the goal for me as long as i can and hopefully long after me <laughs> how, how old are you now 39 yeah, you got a long way to go. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm trying to trying to be as conservative as I can without being too yeah. crazy conservative. <laughs> yeah. You are you know, listen, you've a fine always, line, you know. You've always been good about conservation. I know you release a lot of stuff that you don't have to release and you you're good about it and uh you know, my days are sometimes, man. <laughs> yeah, I you know, listen, I mean, we we both of us have a, a tough a tough thing you know people want to see the pictures of a lot of fish on the dock and yeah that's what sells trips and they they enjoy it and people like catching them they like killing them i've had guys say you know with yellow fins like uh, i i you know we get to our 18 and i say that's it guys you know we're catching release from here what do you mean we can't keep your 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 limit or, your, or their mate's limit and i right. said i'm not doing it i'm not doing it no, no. 18 and that's it and we'll go catch and release well we might as well go home then okay you know i mean like is it is it about the meat you're taking home or is it about the enjoyment of catching them you know yeah. one one thing i've noticed like we, we do a lot of the black fishing during the, during the fall and and in the spring and that particular group of guys is more sportsman like than the majority of of people that fish for other species where it's more of a how much can i keep where those guys are looking for a trophy fish, but they're happy to release it. Right. So you know, I'd like to see a little bit more of that in general. In, in all fisheries, you know, I, I try hard not to do the shit tons of fish on a dock photo and try to do more of the people holding them when they're pretty. Yeah. But, yeah. You know how it is. Sometimes you got to show those 18 on a dock to get people amped to go. Yeah. Yeah, and, absolutely. That's very absolutely. Evil. And Social media, somebody's always got, always got something to say. Whether you're doing like, I caught so much slack for releasing wahoos two years ago. <laughs> I was like, I just want to know who stuck their who stuck their hand in the mouth to, to unhook that thing. <laughs> I have a really, I have a, I have a badass D hooker. You can stay yeah. a few feet away from their mouth as long as they were down the water longer than thirty seconds. We were let them go because the guy wanted That's to cool. catch a. His goal was to catch a hundred pounder, and we said, "All right, we'll we'll." We'll catch 15 or 100 pounder, whichever one comes first. And wow. we'll only keep what we're going to eat. And that's so it was just such great fishing. You know, just kept going as long. 
long as they came in and were out of the boat within 30 seconds and we didn't fight them for long. And I mean, they were healthy. They were swimming away. That's awesome. Shark bait, this and that. Like, come on, people, really? They have a better chance in the water than they do out of it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> we know their fate once they're on the deck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and my boat's really easy to pull them through the door. I mean, the whole door opens and it's it's like got a sliding board, basically. It's easy to get them in without hurting them. That's awesome. You know, but anyway, but uh, yeah, I mean, conservation definitely is important. Just uh, just wish everybody could be on the same page. You know, yeah. Yeah. I think as I get older, I, you know, I see, you know, I start thinking about my kids and guys like you that are a lot younger than me than being able to do this for the next 30 or 40 years and it'd be nice to everybody be on the same page. And, you know, I'm not saying I'm not going to throw 18 on a dock this year, but, like, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Me either. but, uh, but, you know, I mean, as a general, as a general thing, kind of move towards a little more conservation and, you know, releasing what we can release and still keep our customers happy and send people home with proper amount of fish. Yeah. You know, we, when we get to like 10, we start asking them, like, do you have a home for all these fish? You know, we got 10 elephants in a box or 12 elephants in a box. That's two fish per man. Right. You know, that's a lot of meat if they're 50 or 60 pounders. You know, do you have someplace to, you know, I don't want to just kill them and, yeah. and have them go to waste, you know? I do the same thing. Once we get to 10 or 12, do that. Or depending on how many people we have in a boat. Once everybody has two, I'm like, all right, well, how many of these things do you really want to kill? Like, and what's your plans with them? Because I don't want to waste them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, I mean, you, you know, probably, uh, oh, I don't know, mid, mid, like 2010, we started to see like a resurgence of the big eye fishing. And by 2012, 13, it started to be like pretty reliable. Yeah. And it, it, it started to become my dream to be able to release a big eye because, you know, <laughs> any big eye we ever caught before that was definitely coming in the boat. Oh, if, yeah. If we were- if we were capable of doing it, you know, <laughs> and we finally got to do it. We actually released six in a trip, you know, which was really cool. That's I, think cool. It, I think it was like 2016 or so, you know, we got to release six of them in good shape. So it was, it was really cool. It was really I'm cool. You hear of often, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It doesn't happen. <laughs> Uh, and, and legitimate big eyes, not like little, you know, not like buoy fish that were, you know, 40 or 50 pounds. He's really, you know, all over 120 pounds, you know. Right, right. You, you've been very successful tournament fishing, especially staying focused on, you're you're a great fisherman. I've seen you catch plenty of other things, but your niche is tuna. And you stuck with that niche and done very well in tournaments. What's your thought process going into tournaments? And, and now there's a lot more people doing it too, so... The, the tuna game used to be even more niche, but now a lot of people are doing that only. Uh, how has that changed the way you approach it over the years? Yeah, it's you know we we've uh, we focused on what we're known known you know people that charter us for these tournaments they know what we do and they know what we're what our specialty is if you will, and it's what we're comfortable doing. I don't have a big crew. I don't have multiple mates. It's me and one mate running these doing these tournaments and none of us have a tremendous amount of uh expertise in the white marlin um yeah we can catch blue marlins you know it's heavy tackle stuff that yeah similar to fishing but we, we just know where our expertise lies and so we stick with that and you know i think more than anything is for me it's it's trying to recognize what i think the odds are for a particular tournament like 
do I think there are going to be big eyes caught? Because if I don't think there are going to be big eyes caught, because there's been no big eyes caught for weeks, I'll focus on something else. I'll focus on yellow fins if I think a yellow fin will win the tournament. And I think that a lot of guys don't do that. Um, they just go for the grand slam and I get it, you know, you're tournament fishing and it makes sense. Go for the grand slam sometimes. But, you know, for me with a, with a group on the boat that, uh, for the white, especially in the white Marlin open, I've had the same group since 2012. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. That makes and, it easy you know, that everybody knows what to expect. They know exactly what to expect and, and they understand tournament fishing better than most. They, their attitude is if we're in the money one out of every five years, we are very happy. And they understand it's a, you know, it's a one bite tournament for the most part. Right. And they just want to feel like we're in the game all the time. They're like, we're in the hunt, you know, even if we don't go to the scales or even if we don't place, they want to know that we were in the hunt for it. And I remember a couple of years ago, I said to them, I said, listen, there hasn't been a big eye caught in a while. I really truly feel like a yellowfin could win this tournament. And they're like, you're the cap. We, we trust you. Like, what do you want to do? I said, you know, it's it's our day one of fishing. Let's let's stay inshore where I know there are yellow fins, and let's let's try to catch one. And we hung a sixty-seven and a half pounder, which was good for the daily. Which in a white marlin open, a daily is worth well. This year it was worth sixty-nine thousand dollars. I mean, it's I not say, pocket, it adds it's up not quick. pocket change. Yeah. yeah, and that right there covers all their expenses for the tournament. Right. So, you know, winning the daily is important. And sometimes that's our strategy too. Like, let's just focus on winning the daily today and whatever, get, get, recoup our costs. And then we can go play around the last two days trying to find a winner. Um, but, you know, we, we hung a 67 and a half pound yellowfin that stayed up on the board till late in the tournament when a Marlin boat came in and had a big yellowfin. And they were about to cut it up on the fillet table at, at sunset. And somebody <laughs> said, what are you doing? And the guy's like, what do you mean? He's like, that's a, that's a, you know, that's a contender. Are you in the <laughs> category? And the guy's like, yeah. So they took it over by truck and weighed it. And he beat us by a half a pound. Are you kidding me? <laughs> $877,000 they won. Oh, you know? my God. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So uh, no it's just. way. Yeah, and so like that year, there was no big eyes caught in the tournament. Uh, just a couple of years ago, same thing. There was an insure, very insure bluefin bite that not a lot of people knew about for the White Marlin Open, and I could see the Ocean City skyline where we were fishing. You know, same deal. We we you know we hung we hung a we lost a really good bluefin the first day we fished. It, we were fishing light gear. You know, you had you needed the light stuff to get the bite, and we were fishing small reels and. You know, we lost a really, really good fish. But the second day, we caught a good fish, and we ended up getting second place with it. But to, only to get beat out by another bluefin that was caught at the same place by another boat that knew about it. There was only a handful of us that knew about it. Right. And so, you know, strategy, knowing what you, you – know, or at least anticipating what you think is going to be caught and then figuring out what your best chances are. I have finished second place so many times in tournaments, I think because of that strategy. Uh, and and also the the willingness to to accept the second place finish versus not finishing anywhere in the money. You know, I'd rather finish in the money, even if it's second place, rather than you know swing for the fences and and get nothing. Yeah, some so, areas, there's only only be one caught, and you got to sit in the one of the big right. holes all day and catch nothing, 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 and hope right. 
it's your lottery ticket and that that's, that's tough this isn't the right move yeah yeah that's tough so you know based on the fishing that we see leading up to the tournaments and the the amount of boats we anticipate like last year there was a bunch of boats in the washington and the pilot whales and we we did that for one day and then the second day we went down to the norfolk to try to get away from the crowd and find something on our own but we didn't really see any sign of big eye down there came back up and you know ended up catching a big eye on the last day up in the washington but it's just a lot of mental calculations and trying to figure out where your best odds lay um it's like going to a casino in Atlantic City, you know, figure out what <laughs> where your odds are the best and, and hope for the best, you know. But yeah. on top of that, it's staying focused. It's staying focused on what you're fishing for. I mean, if we're like last year, we, we were fishing for a big eye. We knew there were going to be big eyes caught. There were big eyes around and big eyes went on the board the first day of the tournament. So that's what was that's what we were fishing for. Right. Staying focused on that. And I always tell people like they, they say luck is when preparation meets opportunity and i feel very strongly that's the case you want your tackle to be 100 percent. you want your baits to be 100 percent. you want to put every little detail in your favor so when you do get that opportunity you can catch the fish absolutely i cannot agree more so i think the guys that are good at tournament fishing and have a good history of tournament fishing put a lot of thought into it but they also put a lot of preparation into it. there's a lot of work that goes into the fishing long before you ever untie the, the boat from the dock. All the time you spent on the water, I really wanted to ask, especially I want to, I guess I want to focus more on all your time, commercial bluefin tuna fishing. Let's face it. You're, a lot of days when you're commercial fishing, you're, you're going, if it's blowing, you're going, doesn't matter. You're rough as could be fish are there. We're going. What's yep. one of your crazier stories, whether it was just, insanity crazy fishing or on a fish and weird stuff happening on the boat it was rough and taking on water <laughs> like any like, let's hear a cool story that, that you want to share uh i mean we've had some some uh a lot of interesting stories down here crossing the bar just just <laughs> getting across the bar in oregon inlet in the dark is a challenge and we have been fortunate to not get whacked going across. I mean, we've taken some, you know, some big waves over to bow, but we haven't blown out any windows or done any damage to the boat and stuff. But more than once, a lot of guys would say, uh, I'm going to wait till daylight or they'd sit outside. They'd sit inside the bar saying, you know, I'm going to wait for somebody else to go. And I'd be the first idiot to go across. <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah, it was fine guys. No problem. And the boat right behind me comes out. He said, okay. And he goes and he, blows out his windows you know and uh, it's like jesus and he just caught a bad set like it wasn't that yeah. you know we we got lucky and he didn't you know and uh so that 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 in general is like one of the things i think about mostly when i'm when i'm down here and i always tell anthony that runs the waterproof during the summer and fishes alongside me during the winter here i said listen you know if we can cross the bar then we can go fishing because there's nothing out there that's going to be worse than what we experience going across right. the bar it's a good you point know? But once we're out there, I, sure, I remember a couple of years ago we were here and I was, I was like I am now sitting at the dock for a few days and getting, getting amped up to go. And uh, I'm an optimist. I looked at, I looked at 10 different forecasts and I found the one that looked the best. <laughs> said, oh, we should go. There's been a good night by, you know, we should go this afternoon. And uh, I convinced another guy to go with me. 
And he's like, he's looking at the forecast. He says, are you sure? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I see like 35, 40 knots. And I'm like, ah, it'll be fine, you know. <laughs> <It'll be> fine. <laughs> Once we get across the bar, it'll be fine, you know. And off we went. And we got there right at dark and we set out our baits drifting. And it was rough. You know, it was probably blowing 30 out of the east and, you know, probably 12 foot. But this boat does well in that. I mean, it, it sits fine. It's, you know, it's it's not bad. Really not bad at all. Right. And uh, we got our bite right away. Like, we're like, oh, this is great, man. We're on. This is going to be awesome. And we got the fish to the boat. And I picked up the harpoon, the harpoon, and, and the hook pulled out. And it swam away. No. <laughs> I look at Anthony. And he looks at me. And we were just like, ah. Oh. He said, all right, we'll, we'll go get another one. And the other boat never had a bite. And we had, did not have a bite the rest of the night. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And we're like, oh, my God. So finally, at sunrise, we were 13 miles from where we started to drift. And wow. we were in the middle of nowhere. And it was too rough to run back to where we were. So he's like, what are we going to do? I said, you know what? I said, we're in the middle of nowhere, but we're going to have to troll our way back. There's nothing else we can do. We can't run into this. It's too It's too rough, you know? Uh-huh. Just me and him. So we we uh, we set out the rods and we started trolling. I think maybe ten minutes into it, the long rigger comes down and we kind of looked at each other like in amazement. It, 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 do we have a fish on? Or you know, like we were kind of like looking at each other, like we we didn't expect to catch a fish, you know. And the thing starts ripping, and of course, you know, we fight it. It comes up and it's it's the biggest bluefin I've ever caught down here, uh, hundred and fifteen or hundred sixteen incher. Wow. And, yeah, nine hundred pounds. <laughs> and it's so rough and we're thinking all right we're gonna get this thing in the boat and go home and we can't get it in the boat you know <laughs> <laughs> we're so shot from you know getting beat up all night and it, on top of that it was the coldest night i ever remember out there usually when you get out in the gulf stream and the water is 75 degrees even if the air temperature is cold it's pretty decent out there huh. it was like 15 degrees it was like we were shivering, you know, I mean, it was like, <laughs> it was like the coldest thing. And we're trying to pull this thing in the boat and we just couldn't do it. Like we were just like out of, out of strength. Like we tried and tried and tried We put a poly ball on his tail. We tried letting the waves wash it, wash it in halfway and then pull it the rest away. And nothing we, there was nothing we could do. <laughs> and then finally I was like looking around and I'm like, wait a second, we got a, we got a, we got a hauler for our anchor. Let's see if we could somehow rig this thing up and, you know, use the hydraulics to get the thing in. And that's eventually yeah. what we did. But uh, <laughs> that was just a an absolute crazy, crazy trip. You how know, long did you with, bite that fish for and how much drag? Believe it or not, that fish, we got him to the boat in an hour and 45 minutes, and which was really not bad considering its size. And we're usually fishing around 45 pounds of drag. And I remember he came up on the surface like 25 feet from the boat and – he had a huge, almost like a yellow fin dorsal, like the, the sickle fin was like, I'm like, wow, I said, I said, Anthony, that's a really big fish. And I said, screw it. And I, I threw the harpoon from like 25 feet and I hit him, you know, I just, oh, said, nice. yeah, I just was taking a shot, you know, and uh, <laughs> I was so happy to hit him and, and be able to go home at that point. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just pouring rain, huge seas. I mean, it's, it's, it's not uncommon for us to fish in some really wicked weather down here. And the fishing's always, well, not always, but most of the time it's really, really good. So if you can beat your way out there and deal with the weather, you can usually have a good trip. Well, what do you have going on now? So you're still down there. You're, you're doing some charters. Are you, 
You mostly yeah. pulling for them, or are you you jigging and chunking? Like, how are you? I guess it varies, or how does it work? Yeah, it really depends on the group that we have. You know, okay. we have we have the one thirties ready to go. We have the fifties ready to go. If guys want to do stand up, and then if we're gonna do jig and pop, they have to bring their own equipment because that's pretty specialized equipment. For sure. Um, I mean, we have a couple of basic rods for jigging, but you know, we're talking most of the fish are big you need <laughs> you need specialized equipment for that but uh yeah i mean guys love it you know there's there's a hardcore group that they just they're addicted to the fishery they come from all over the world there's guys that come from japan and do it uh we have a group that comes from texas um they came a few years ago and fished with us i think they booked three or four days and we got out two days i think and i think we had 22 bites in two days wow. of fishing all on a jig and okay. i think they landed maybe seven out of that you know which is doesn't sound very good but when you on when you're catching five six hundred pounders on spinning reels i was gonna say that's impressive yeah yeah pretty impressive you know pretty impressive and then last they have a year, harness set up for the spinners in any of any sort or are they just going straight brute strength holding on to the rod it it depends on the guy some guys use like this little spin strap that right. goes around the, the rod right above the uh, reel. Uh-huh. And it's got two little D-rings. It goes around, wraps around a rod once, and then it's got two little D-rings that you clip to a harness. But what I've seen happen with that is that the the stem of the reel breaks. Uh, it actually goes to the, the pressure. Um, you can break the stem. I've seen, I've seen the stem of the reel break multiple times. Okay. Um, I didn't think about that. I've never had that happen before. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. And then, you know, we get spooled sometimes. Like guys will just run out of line. You know, there's just no more line on the reel or, you know, but some guys go at it without a harness. I think that the, the guys that are more experienced, they go at it without a harness. The Japanese guys, the, the Sammy from Saltwater Tackle guys, that that crowd, you know, they're pretty hardcore and they'll go at it without a harness. And okay. um, pretty amazing what they can do, honestly, with, with those small rods and reels and 80 pound braid can hold so much drag. I'm just blown away sometimes, you know, a lot of these guys are fishing 80 or hundred pound braid and, um, you know, tremendous drag, like they'll fish more drag than we fish on the one thirties because they, they don't have the line capacity. So they really need to. Like 50, yeah. 60. Yeah. Yeah. Like wow. 60, 65. That's a lot of drag. Uh, it's a lot of drag. It's a lot. Good on uh, that. Wow. Impressive. But, um, like that group from Texas, Last year booked like five or six days with us and got blown out every day. So this uh, year they booked ten days. <laughs> so we'll see what happens, you know. Well, what um, kind of is there any kind can... of jigs? Like let's get technical just for a minute. Are there any kind of jigs that you found work better than others for the bluefins or the giant bluefins? Or did it kind of um, put it in front of their face and it's game on? I think the key is to get it in front of them and it's game yeah. on for the most part. I mean when they came uh, when they came and fished with us two years ago, they brought their own jigs. They make their own jigs. They're like 450 gram, 500 gram. They're really heavy. Okay. And, um, but that's what you needed to get down. We were marking fish from 250 to 400 feet. Oh, wow. So you really got to get so, down. Yeah. You know, they used, uh, they used metered braid. Everything's in meters. So I converted my machine to meters and I'd call out the depth and wow. they'd just look at the colors as it went down and knew exactly what depth they had to be at. And, it was like two or three sweeps of the rod and they were tight, you know, it was pretty, pretty incredible. You That's know? cool. Yeah. Man, really cool. What about for but, hooks? Uh, are, they, are they using some kind of special assist hooks or is it just straight to the jig or how are they? Yeah. Up to, to combat all that drag. 
Yeah, I think like 500-pound Kevlar cord, you know, yeah. with a really heavy-duty Shout or BKK or one of those right. heavy uh, quick rig uh, type inline hooks, you know, uh -huh. but big heavy hooks, you know. That's cool. Big bro. heavy hooks. I haven't had much experience with jigging big tunas like that. I mean, jig some big eyes, but that's kind of been the extent of it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty uh it's pretty wild. It really is. Um <laughs> to to see a guy hook up and when when he has success, I mean it's just amazing. When he gets the fish to the boat, it's just really amazing, you know. Yeah. yeah so definitely. we were lucky last year. We found not that we found them, but there was a smaller a body of smaller fish further south, like closer to the Diamond Shoals, that I mean you could still catch a hundred and ten incher in there, but for the most part there was a lot of 55 to 85 inch fish as okay. opposed to uh, everything being over 90 inches in the other area, you know, 90 to 110 inches. So you had a really good shot at catching a fish that you could keep recreationally an under 73. And even if you hooked a bigger one at 85 inches, those fish were mostly manageable on spin gear. Um, but once you get into that 9,500 inch range, they're, they're a beast. A they're really a lot of weight to move. It's a lot of weight. <laughs> like I said, the one we hooked the other day, three hours on a 130. I mean, it was like, and we we gave it, and we were at 45 pounds of drag, but these guys are pulling on the line on top of that. I mean, they, right. they were putting the rod tip in the water on a, on a 130 blank. You know, I mean, it was probably 60, 70 pounds of drag on this thing for three hours. What weight leader are you using? So we fish um, 175 high seas and a 180 mono main line with 200-pound braid. But um, I generally don't go less than 175 when we're trolling here. Okay. You know? What about uh, your swivel? Are you doing crank on swivel, like a, a 220 Spro or something like that? Or Yeah, I use a, just a regular 230 Spro, you know, number five power swivel. Nothing. Yeah, right. not, yeah. And we use some Winthrop guides, so everything goes through really nice. And, right. You know, even on a stand-up gear, it's the same setup, except we're fishing 50 wides with 130-pound braid and 130-pound mono, but still fishing the same 230 Spro to a 175 liter. Stainless steel hooks or, or steel hooks? Like, have you had problems nah. with stainless steel ones with that, that much drag yeah. that long? Or? Yeah, yeah. The, the stainless ones don't hold up at that kind of drag pressure. We use the steel hooks, and I'm using a um, – uh, for trolling, I'm using a Mustad 7691 – dt in a nine oh okay i like the thin thin the thin wire um it's thinner wire than the than the 7698 and it's also thinner wire than the bigger 7691s okay. but i think it helps me get more bites i like the way my bait swim with it and you know every season we might bend one we might bend one of, one of them out but for the most part they're good for us and um i feel like the trade-off between the hook potentially bending Versus the number of bites we get and having a bait swim really well, it's worth the trade off, you know. Yeah, I'd rather have a hook bend and break like stainless steel will too. I mean, you really yeah, can hang on to them even if you bend it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I was curious about um, that. I haven't spent really any time uh, targeting large, very large tuna. I always was curious. Love to one day, just hasn't been in the cards for me yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're, you know, it's like, it's like people say, Oh, have you ever done this? Or, you ever done that? And I'm like, you know, I'd love to, but I'm always busy fishing somewhere else. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yep. and when it's your livelihood, like I understand, you know, you got to be in DR right now, you know, that's yeah. what you do. And, yep. uh, I'd love to, you know, I'd tell you, Hey, anytime you want to come to the outer banks to go fishing with me, please do. But <laughs> I appreciate you're probably it, somewhere, 
Yeah, yeah, but you're probably <laughs> somewhere else fishing though, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, always fishing somewhere. Well, what's in the future for you guys and for you for you in general and and the programming you have and also your uh the Intel service? Yeah, and I have your Intel yeah. service. What's what's in it for the future for you and and everything you have going on? Well, listen, I, I'm 57. I still go at it like the young guys. I oh, still yeah. love it. I love it like like I can't wait to go fishing again, you know? And uh, <laughs> I don't feel like I've slowed down at all. So for me, I mean, I hope I can do it for another 15 or 20 years. Um, but we'll see. Um, in the uh, more immediate future, I mean, we're, we're putting some money into Blue Runner to make it, you know, with the sonar and stuff like that and doing some cosmetic upgrades and, uh-huh. you know, just keeping things. We put new engines in it two years ago. So just staying up with that and hoping that that program continues to go well you know, the fishing part of it and having charters and all that. I mean, you know, right now the, the, the demand's been really high, you know, we're fully booked for the upcoming year, which makes me really happy. Yeah. And, you know, keep going with waterproof, our down East boat. It's just a little, it's a different price point. It's a different feel. We can do the commercial fishing with it in the winter. We can do the bluefin charters down here. It's great for black fishing and the rest of the year, Anthony, doing his canyon stuff and his midshore stuff with it and it's uh it's been a great boat for us i mean we're we built it brand new i think it's a 2017 and when i look at the clock on the engine it's at 11,300 hours you know so (laughs) it it, it runs a little bit you know (laughs) no doubt no doubt yeah so we're gonna keep going you know we're gonna keep going with that and then you know the information service the intel service it's like i call it like an intel and education service we try to help guys that um need guidance i mean let's face it you as you you already know like the more time you spend on the water the better you get at going through the learning curve you know for sure guys that go once a week or twice a month are going to have a hard time getting up to speed and learning what's working what learning what's work because it, it's constantly evolving things are constantly changing we figure out better ways to do things whether it be rigging baits or different heads that we're using or different hooks or whatever it is, you know, how I fish now is totally different than how I fished five years ago. For sure. Um, And whether it's an evolution of bars or, and, and just day-to-day trends in the fisheries, what colors are producing? Are they they on plastic? Are they on meat? Do they want it close to the boat? Do they want it far from the boat? Those are the things that we can help guys with, you know, is it a morning bite? Is it an afternoon bite? Does there have to be birds? Does there have to be whales around you to get a bite? Right. You know, those are the details that, you know, it's great to know that the fish were in the Wilmington Canyon, but if the water moves and the conditions change, you don't want to be in a Wilmington Canyon. You want to be wherever those conditions are now. Correct. So you don't go a lot. It's hard to understand how that all works. Exactly. Everybody's and that's so location specific. Oh, they're, they're catching them in a linen call. Oh, right. Well, right. why? <laughs> why were they there? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And sometimes I'm amazed that so many guys think that you have to actually be in a canyon to catch and yeah. not be in between canyons on a natural hundred. Like, you know, down your way, like, you know, the G spot or the 500 square. I mean, those places are well known and but how many times do we catch fish between the Spencer and the Wilmington or the Wilmington and the Baltimore or the Baltimore and the Spencer or the right. Baltimore poor man's along the, just along the edge there following the water. And I feel like up our way, especially 
guys feel like you have to be in a canyon. Like you can go to the Hudson on when there's some sort of decent bite around and see 30 or 40 boats in the hundred square and go two miles northeast of the hundred square and not see a boat or, you know, not be around another boat. Right. But they won't leave that corner. They'll just stay right there and they won't leave. Like in your area, I think it's a little more accepted to fish in between canyons, but up by us, it's like, you never see people in between canyons, you know? And I think also so big too. I feel like you guys have a, just everybody seems to have so much success at a certain time of the year. I guess everybody just got that focus on being in the canyon. Yeah. Our closest thing to that, I guess you would say would be the Wilmington. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're very, uh, they, they remind me of each other. You know, I fish a lot in both and, they have very similar qualities, you know. Of course, yeah. the Wilmington's a lot smaller, but it's um, it's a very similar style canyon. Um, For sure. But um, you know, so anyway, it's really just trying to give them the background education, teach them how to get to tackle right, you know, like in the off season and stuff like that. We're we're giving them crimping and showing them how to rig baits and what head combination, like with what you know, what head, what weight head, what style head, with what chin weight, with what hook is a great combination to try to, so they don't have to try to figure it out on their own. Like, yeah. you know, we've already figured it out. Like we know that this head with this chin weight and this size hook is going to be a good combination. If you rig the ballyhoo properly, it'll swim excellent, you know? And that's, that's what we try to, we try to give them that education in the off season and throughout the season. And then once we, once we get into the fishing part of it, we're giving them Intel. They're calling me before they leave the dock or the day before they leave the dock and then there's, uh, I mean, Starlink has been a game changer for everybody, but especially for us, you know, we can talk on the phone while they're out fishing and I'm out fishing and compare notes and try to help each other out and stuff like that. So, That's awesome. you know, yeah. So it's been, uh, it's been really good and it's been growing. We don't do very, we do very little advertising about the information service, but uh, it's just growing through referral over the we started it in 2015 and it's it's grown every year since then you know and it's just a nice steady growth that you know we're not looking to explode it we just want to have the right guys in the group that are willing to share information as well as you know receive information back from us so it's uh it works it helps us and it helps them i don't say perfect works works both ways yeah absolutely well how can people follow you or contact you Social media is great. Uh, Blue Runner Sport Fishing on Facebook or Instagram. And of course, my own personal Facebook, Mark de Blasio, or they can reach me through email at mark at bluerunner.fishing. That's M A R K at bluerunner, one word, dot fishing, no dot com. Okay. And uh, my cell, 201 988 5475. It's always on and I'm always near it. All right. Anybody wants to reach out to Mark, I'll have all that in the show notes as well. And you know, if, if you can get him when he's available, definitely get out fishing with him. <laughs> Appreciate like it. Man. You're always booked up good. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good problem to have. I ain't complaining. Sure is. Sure is. Oh, man. Well, I really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot, Mark. Yeah. Anytime, Ricky. Anything I could do to help you, let me know. Awesome, man. Well, thanks a lot, and I'll talk to you. You got it, Ricky. Thanks, man. All right. See you, Mark. Thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 35 of the Salty For You podcast. Before we sign off, we're going to end it with what we usually end it with, our top yacht section. 
of this podcast, and it is where I pick four different categories of boats that I feel are good deals on the market right now. And for those of you who don't know, I am a yacht broker with United Yacht. I would love to help you buy or sell your boat. And if you want help with that, please reach out to me and email me at rickywheeler at unitedyacht.com. And I'd love to help you. But let's jump right into it here. Today, we're going to start with the sport fishing boats for under 300000 I'm going to go with this Cabo 35 Express. It's a 2004, which is actually... And what I'm going to go with is actually a boat that I have listed. It is a 2004 35-foot Cabo Express. And right now, it's listed for 219000 And this boat is probably getting overlooked a lot. I mean, it's priced extremely fair. Actually, kind of low for what it is compared to anything else you see on the market. That's a 35-foot Cabo. And it has a 2004 hull, which is a better hull, drier ride, of most of the 35 Cabos before its time. I'm sure this boat has been overlooked a lot because it is located in Grenada. So if you're only searching in the U.S., you're not going to see this boat. But yes, it is in Grenada. It's kind of far away, but it's also peak fishing season there right now. So it's, it's a great time to get an awesome boat if you're looking for something that's in a 35-foot range as an express, which makes it an easy owner-operator boat. And you could start your time with the boat in an awesome place and cruise through the islands and get to know the boat even better on your way back to the U.S. Or it's easy enough I can have someone move it and have it shipped back. And either way, you're looking at anywhere from $18,000 to $28,000 to get the boat back stateside. So the owners do understand that. They have that in mind. That is part of the reason why the price is low for what it is. But bring offers. They're definitely looking to move the boat. And it, again, I, I can help you out if you're looking to get the boat from Grenada to, to the States. And it's powered with cat power, which most people love. And it has the 3126B engines that put out 450 horsepower. It only has 2,000 hours on it. So it's got a lot of life left to give. And I just think it's a great boat, especially for what's out there right now. The next boat I'm going to go with falls under the category of the fishing center consoles. And it's a boat that I've always thought is a really cool boat. And this is a 2,031 foot contender fishing around. It's just a really cool boat that is very, very comfortable. I've fished on one before and it's just, it's a lot of fun to fish on. I mean, you have the walk around capability, but you do have a nice little helm station that you can stay dry and comfortable in because of the, the layout. It does have a little, little bit of a downstairs where you can get out of the sun. If you need to rest and somebody needs to take a nap, it has a little bed. It also has a little bathroom, so it makes it a really cool boat. So just a good all-around boat, great fishing boat. It has a 31 contender hull, so you know you got a great hull there. And this boat does have older engines, 2006 Yamaha 250s, and it has 650 hours on them. But with 250s on it, this boat's still going to fly. It's just a really cool boat. Looks like the people that have had it taking very good care of it. It's been lately used and well-maintained. I think it's a really cool boat. I mean, if you want a little more power, that's the only thing you have to upgrade. And for $125,000, I think it's a great deal. The next category I'm going to go with is my top production pick for sport fishing boats. This week, I'm going to pick a 2008 54-foot Ocean Yacht Super Sport. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh yeah, Ocean Yachts. I mean, they're not known as the most seaworthy boats, but I ran a 54 out of New Jersey for three summers. I thought it was a really cool boat. It handled just fine. I mean, fishing New Jersey, you got to deal with the sea at some point, whether it's in the forecast or not, and never had a problem getting out or getting back on this boat. Never had to turn around, handle the sea well. And the coolest feature about this boat is it's just a really comfortable boat inside and out. 
It has a very spacious cockpit with a nice mezzanine. It's very comfortable. And the interior just makes the boat feel so much bigger than 54 foot. It has a really cool salon with a step-up galley, which allows for an extra stateroom. So you have a lot of staterooms and sleeping quarters on this boat, more than any 54-foot boat I've ever been on. And on top of that, the bridge is laid out very nice. It has a center helm station, very comfortable seating, and I just really enjoy fishing on this boat. And for $600,000 for a 2008 54-foot boat, really hard to beat right now. And the engines only have 1,800 hours on them, and they're 2008 Man V10 CRMs. And they put out 1,100 horsepower, which was the same as the boat that I ran. And our cruise was right around 26 to 28 knots, which is more than enough for most places in the world. So for $600,000, I think it's an awesome deal and a great boat that I feel gets overlooked a lot. And I just wanted to shine some light on this one. The last category in the top yachts for this week is custom sport fishing boats. I'm not a huge express guy. If you know me, I, I, love, I love a bridge boat, but... There is a time and place where express boats really make sense, especially for someone that's an owner-operator and someone that likes to run their boat but still be in the action. There are definitely some really pretty ones out there, and if you're going to get a really pretty custom boat, I think this one right here is awesome. And I am biased because I spent quite a few summers mating on this boat when I was younger, and it's just gorgeous. It is a 1989 Custom Carolina 50-foot Ricky Gilligan. Boat's named Boss Lady. It's out of Avalon, New Jersey, and it's listed right now for just under $800,000. Boat rides great. It's 24-25 knot cruise, and right now it has 1,600 hours on rebuilt Caterpillar 3406 engines, which anybody that knows them are a very reliable engine, easy to get parts for. They put out 800 horsepower. And the boat's just really pretty boat inside now, and it's had a lot of work done to it over the past couple years to keep it up with the times. Right now, I think that's the top custom boat pick out there. Thanks, everyone, for sticking around for this segment of Top Yachts. I hope you love this episode. Mark definitely put a lot of information out there on the table that I hope helps some of you. I know I learned a lot from this one as well. And I'll talk to you all in episode 36. Thanks for listening. This was another episode of the Saltwater Euphoria Podcast. If you want to find out more about all the things that were mentioned on this episode, visit saltwatereuphoria.com forward slash podcast. Hit like and subscribe for more big game sport fishing, conversations with other sport fishing enthusiasts, and personal stories from the life of Captain Ricky Wheeler. This is Saltwater Euphoria Podcast. Till next time.